Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. If you've listened to me long enough, then no doubt you've heard me say many times before that trials are won and lost in the closing arguments. As sad as it is, it's true. Jurors will sit through weeks and weeks, sometimes months of testimony, and then form their final verdicts based on a 40-minute speech at the conclusion of the trial. Who can tell the most believable and logical story? Who can sum up weeks' worth of minutiae into a narrative that the jury will buy into? Closing arguments are not evidence, and the jury is instructed not to consider them as evidence. And while that may seem like a good thing, it can also lead to very bad things. The lawyers are not bound by the truth or facts in the closing arguments. There are supposed to be rules about misstating evidence, but to be honest, I've never seen that make a bit of difference. It's frowned upon to object during opposing counsel's closing. But every once in a while, things will get so ridiculous that an objection is offered, usually for misstating evidence from the trial, and the rulings are almost always the same. Overruled. The jury knows this is not evidence. Lawyers on both sides will completely misrepresent what the witnesses said on the stand without a second thought. Because after all, this isn't evidence. Surely the jury remembers what was actually testified to three weeks before. I truly hate the way our trial system works. And this, today's episode, will be a great example as to why. This is Season 12, Episode 57, The State's Closing. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our stay connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com.
Sky Fiber only 30 second 4G activation or one off credit. New customers Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. The trial is over. The jury has heard from all the witnesses. They've seen all the evidence. And now, it's story time. That's how trials in America end. With stories. I said that I hate how the system works. And I said that partially because while the state is supposed to be the underdog, in practice and in reality, they have all the advantages. This is mostly due to the fact that on paper, they are the side with the burden of proof. If you just read American law, it makes sense. But that's because our laws do not account for human nature. They're written as though we have robots for jurors. On paper, the defendant is innocent until proven guilty. The defense has no obligation or burden to prove their innocence. On paper, the state has to convince the jury, with actual proof, that there can be no doubt at all based on any kind of reasoning that the innocent defendant is actually guilty of the crime that the state is accusing them of. That is an incredible challenge, again, on paper. And because of that, the state is given the upper hand at the trial. They get to make the first opening statement. So the first words that the jury hears about the case comes from the prosecutor telling them that the defendant is guilty. Then the state gets to present their evidence first. The defense doesn't get to put up a single witness until the state has fully exhausted all means necessary to convince the jury that the defendant is guilty. Think about how hard it is to change someone's mind once they've convinced themselves of something. Then, after days or weeks or even months of watching the prosecution make their case, the defense finally gets a turn they get a chance to try to change the jury's mind. The defense makes their case, and then the state gets to make the first closing argument. It's supposed to be a summary of what the jury heard and saw during the trial, but really it's a spin game. They get to attack everything the defense just put up as evidence, tell you why you shouldn't believe it, cherry-pick the elements of their case that seem to fit together, and present a story that is intended to make the listener believe that there is no other possible explanation. The defendant must be guilty. Then the defense gets to make their closing argument. While they're able to prepare how they want to tell their story, they also have to be taking notes about what the prosecution said during their closing. They have to try to address and push back against the state's story before they can tell their own story. And then, once the defense sits down, the state again gets the final word. Since on paper, they are the party at the disadvantage. The prosecutor gets to stand back up and refute everything the defense just said and drive their story home one more time before the jury goes in for deliberations. While all of that makes sense on paper, In reality, the state isn't at a disadvantage at all. Human nature eliminates their underdog status right from the start. People generally tend to believe that if the police arrested someone, and the DA is prosecuting that person, then they must be guilty. 
Your average juror, despite their instructions, wants to see the defendant prove their innocence. They want to see the defendant take the stand, which rarely happens. I've been a part of two jury trials as a juror and have gone through the jury selection process three times on top of that. During voir dire, the defense attorneys always ask potential jurors if they fully understand that the defendant doesn't have to take the stand because they have no obligation to prove their innocence. And every time I've witnessed this, one after another, potential jurors say that they think the defendant should testify to prove their innocence. Some of those jurors are dismissed and some aren't. But always, after a few get the boot, people start answering that question differently. They learn from watching the others that that's the wrong answer. I've participated in jury deliberations and watched firsthand the assumption of guilt that most jurors begin with. I once sat as an alternate juror on a DUI case. The woman on trial blew a .05 on her breathalyzer. The legal limit here in Michigan is .08, but she was well under it. The officer claimed that he pulled her over because she was swerving, but his dash cam malfunctioned, so there was no evidence of the alleged swerving. His body cam captured him speaking with the defendant, who showed no outward signs of intoxication. It also showed her forming field sobriety tests, where she was able to stand on one foot, walk a straight line, heel to toe, etc. The arresting officer testified that during one of the tests, her eyes were unable to maintain focus on his finger, which he said he testified to that studies have shown that that means there is a 70% likelihood that she was too intoxicated to drive. 70% which means there's a 30% likelihood that she was not too intoxicated to drive that is the embodiment of reasonable doubt I was an alternate so I wasn't allowed to participate in the deliberations but it took the rest of the jury just 30 minutes to deliver a unanimous guilty verdict and that ladies and gentlemen is how our system actually works Not only does the state not have a disadvantage, they really have all the advantages at trial. That leads us to the content of today's episode, Assistant District Attorney Aki's Closing Argument. The full transcript's available on our website. I'll be breaking down the major points here in today's show, so let's get started. Aki starts out by painting Robert and Christian as criminal masterminds. Quote, This, as you saw it, was almost the perfect crime. These two men there almost got away with it. This was a crime scene that was vast and remote in a remote area of Riverside County. Three innocent people were brutally slaughtered under the cover of darkness, two of them enjoying their golden years, and one of them getting her potential snuffed out cut short. Their bodies set ablaze to destroy any evidence of who might have perpetrated this crime or what may have led to the killings. Their bodies so brutally desecrated that their families could not have an open casket funeral. End quote. A few times in his closing, Aki points to motive, a question that many of you have expressed over and over again. The big why. And here's the explanation provided. Quote, The big question is why. Even though I have no obligation, nor do I have to prove motive to you, the reason is very simple. 
they were selfish. They wanted to let you know that their lives were more important than our victims. End quote. As the closing goes on, Aki repeats again, quote, This was almost the perfect crime. They almost got away with it. End quote. What he's doing here seems obvious to me. It's two things, actually. One, he's trying to tell a story similar to what jurors may have seen on TV and in movies. He's dramatizing the case. It was almost the perfect crime. They almost got away with it. But he's also trying to shift the thoughts of the lack of evidence in this case from poor police work in a weak case to extraordinary police work. Like Leclerc should be applauded for finding anything at all, considering the incredible job Robert and Christian did in concealing their almost perfect crime. He says that almost no evidence was left behind due to the fires. The water sprayed on the fires and the foam used by the fire department. He mentions the water and foam over and over again. How could investigators possibly have found any physical evidence? He makes it seem impossible. And then he introduces our hero, Leclerc. This is what Leclerc actually testified to. He followed the wheelbarrow track until it stopped. Then he continued north about another 60 feet where he found a hole. He explained on the stand that the hole looked like something had been dug up and then the hole filled back in again with dirt. He says that he even dug into the hole about two feet and the soil was loose, confirming that something had been dug out of that location. He says there was no evidence of any human activity within 60 feet of the hole and near the location of it is where he found the business car. And yet, over and over again in this closing, Aki refers to that hole as an area where we know a, quote, violent struggle occurred. Quote, We know that there was a wheelbarrow with a body burning in it. We know that there were two sets of shoe prints coming from out in the wilderness back towards the house following the tire imprints of the wheelbarrow. We know that there had been a violent struggle out in the desert. We know that there was a third shoe impression out there that belonged to the victim in and among the other two shoe prints that were also identified. And that shoe print was near the struggle site. And 15 feet away was a business card that seemed out of place. End quote. And that's how it's done, folks. Just like that. A spot that was clearly the location where a plant or a tree was dug out of the ground nowhere near the end of the wheelbarrow track or footprints is now a quote struggle site that was near Becky's footprint. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now Aki starts trying to connect the dots with the jurors. First of all, this couldn't be a setup because LeClaire didn't know about the planned hike with Robert when he collected the card. And, quote, He didn't know that when he was looking at the business card out there in the wilderness, oddly placed, or near the scene of a violent struggle. He did not know that the name on the card, Marie Widman, had worked with a volunteer named Kathleen Pape. End quote. Now that's the third of many times that he refers to that hole as an area where a violent struggle occurred. He goes on to remind the jurors that Christian said that he had never been to Becky's house and that both his fingerprints and DNA were found on the car. Aki then proceeds to present the case against the defendants as Becky speaking to the jurors from the grave. Literally, that's what he said. Quote, Now, what you should know, what's very important in this case, is that Becky Friedley spoke to you from the grave. End quote. He says that Becky exposed Robert and Christian's lies about their whereabouts because she called them from 7 p.m. to 7.13 p.m. And it was those calls that enabled the police to use cell phone connections to determine their location. He says without that information, quote, you would never know that they started driving up to Pinion Pines, end quote. And this is why I've been saying that the suppression of the sector data is so important. Yes, Bowl said that he couldn't determine the actual location of the phone without it, but that didn't matter at the end of the day because the prosecutor told the jury, stated as fact, that the cell phone evidence proved that Robert and Christian were headed down Highway 74 towards the crime scene at 7.13 p.m. Aki continues on to say that the phone records exposed Robert's lies about who initiated contact between him and Becky, and that part is accurate. Robert's version of how and when he and Becky started talking again during that first interview wasn't true. But while the fact is that Robert wasn't truthful about his call to Becky on Thursday, he was truthful about talking to her on Saturday and Sunday and about her asking him to go hiking. It is still a lie, but Aki frames it up like this. Quote, you would also never know how those phone records expose defendant Robert Pape's lies about their relationship, their past contact, and who initiated what contact during that fateful time between September 14th and September 17th. He then goes on to say that Robert was unaware that Javier was with Becky during that initial call, and it's through Javier that Becky is now speaking to us again. And then Aki flat out misstates the evidence. Quote, but most importantly, Robert Pape is unaware that Javier Garcia hears, make sure your parents are not home on this planned hike. From all of her actions and conduct, at least described by Javier Garcia, Becky agrees to go on this hike with Mr. Pape to talk about their relationship. That, ladies and gentlemen, is complete and total BS. Javier was explicitly clear in his testimony that he did not hear Robert say anything about Becky's parents being home. And in fact, he didn't hear the conversation at all. Even after being presented with his original interview where he said that he had overheard the conversation, he still doubled down again and said that he did not hear the conversation. 
And I don't believe he ever said that the purpose of the hike was for Robert and Becky to talk about their relationship. This entire statement by Aki is a complete lie. And yet, it was allowed to be said without objection because it's technically not evidence. Aki goes on to point out that Robert and Becky had 24 points of contact between the 14th and the 17th over the phone. He characterizes that as an excessive amount of contact and says, quote, That is evidence of a person trying to rekindle or at least get back in the good graces of someone. End quote. The truth is that Becky and Robert spoke on and off through text mostly over the course of those days, and their amount of contact pales in comparison to Becky's contact with, say, Javier. It's just not a lot. Look at your phone at your text conversations. A quick back and forth with a friend can rack up 8 to 12 points of contact in a matter of minutes without even saying much. But Aki's trying to paint a picture of a jealous former lover. Next, we get into the calls on the night of the murders. Robert's conversation with Becky at 6.14 p.m. and Javier's conversation with her at 6.40. He points out that Javier says at 6.40, Becky told him that she had just gotten out of the shower and gotten dressed and she was waiting for Robert to arrive. The contrast Aki is trying to demonstrate here is that he claims Robert told police that he canceled the hike during the 6.14 call and that when he canceled, Becky was crying and she was distraught. But when Javier talked to her 25 minutes later, he says that she wasn't crying. The truth is, what Robert actually said was that Becky got kind of emotional when he said that he wasn't coming. When Michaels asked if that meant she was depressed, he said no, she was just emotional, like overreacting. He never once said she was crying. Never. And yet Aki says repeatedly that Robert was lying when he said that Becky was crying. Because she wasn't crying 25 minutes later, which might as well have been two minutes later, because he never said she was crying to begin with. Now we see where Aki was able to continue to use the absence of the sector data in his favor. Let me read to you this segment from the transcript, and then I'll break down the problems. Quote, So what do they do? Robert and Christian leave. They indicated that they called Sacred Heart Church. At 7 o'clock, they called 411 to get the number. At 701, you get this from Special Agent Bowles, they call Sacred Heart, and they learn at 701 p.m. on Sunday, September 17th, there is no church. They both say they turn around and they go back to Christian Smith's house, which is at the top center of this diagram. But do they go there? Is that what their records show? Is that what the evidence shows? No. They go to 705, which travels up Highway 74. They go through 523, that also has cell signal service up Highway 74. They go through 745. They are driving in the opposite direction of where they say they were that night. And you know from the gladiator evidence that was presented and from Special Agent Kevin Bowles that their behavior is consistent with the cell tower coverage in those areas going up Highway 74. End quote. So that sounds pretty compelling, right? Aki says that after they call the church and find out that there is no church service, the next call connects to Tower 705, which is the one down in the south end of the valley, north of the intersection of 111 and 74. And this is one of the many reasons that the state didn't want the jury to see the sector data. He presented that evidence as though the call to Sacred Heart at 701 occurred connected to Tower 707, the one that covers Robert's house. And then, four minutes later, the next call connects to 705, 
making it appear as though they were at Roberts when they made the call. And then when they said they were headed north to Christians, they actually went south and then hit Tower 705. What he didn't want the jury to know was that they were already in the 705 coverage area when they made the call to Sacred Heart. The sector data shows the call started on Tower 707, but that call, the one to Sacred Heart, ended on Tower 705, proving they were already in the southern part of the valley when they made that call. And remember, these jurors are locals. You may look at the map and say, well, if they found out there was no church at, say, 111 south of Country Club Drive, they could have just turned around there. But a local would know that that is much easier said than done. 111 is a divided highway with not a lot of places to turn left, and it is a heavily trafficked road. It's far easier to just continue and take another route back than it would be to turn around. So if you don't think there was an obvious advantage for the state to suppress the sector data evidence, you are sadly mistaken. It made a huge difference. It is what allowed for most of this closing argument, the lack of the sector data. The difference between they were at Roberts when they found out there was no church and then left and went south and they were already in the south half of the valley headed to church when they made that call is significant. He also described Tower 705 as the tower that, quote, travels up Highway 74, which on its face is true. Sector 2 of 705 does have some coverage down 74, but it's certainly not the most likely tower to connect to on that route. It's fair what he said, but in my opinion, overstated. But then comes the big one, the one we spent weeks on, the 713 call. Aki tells a story of how the last connection was made on Tower 745 the Bighorn Tower, and he cites Bowles' testimony for validity. The last connection was on the Bighorn Tower. Now, what Bowles actually said was that he couldn't determine location without sector data, but that didn't matter. And what we know the sector data actually shows, and I 100% believe that Aki knew too, is that the final connection was absolutely not Tower 745. The final connection was on Tower 705, which is north-northeast of Highway 74 on the sector that faces east-southeast. This is why the sector data matters. You can believe me and Mike Dowd, or you can believe Ed's analysis. And you can get into the weeds and what's possible and what's probable. But at the end of the day, this is what wins and loses cases, the closing arguments, the final story. And because the sector data was suppressed from the jury, the state was able to tell their story and back it up with what appeared to be solid evidence. And it was easy. The last connection was the Bighorn Tower. End of story. That story was able to be told because the jury didn't have access to the sector data. Aki moves on to highlight the period of time where the phones weren't connected to any towers, which is certainly fair. And then he uses Sarah Honaker's testimony in kind of a weird way. He tells the jury that they should trust her when she says that it was unusual for Robert not to be reachable on his phone. But then he later, in the closing, discredits her testimony about all the good things she says about Robert. For example, the fact that he's not capable of violence. That can't be trusted because she is, quote, his best friend he makes sure to point out in his closing. 
After that, Aki starts to try to make the timeline work. Tim Summerlee called 911 at 9.45 p.m., so the fire is definitely burning then. The fire department arrives on scene at 10.12. He mentions again that water and foam were used to extinguish her body, again trying to explain away the lack of DNA evidence. Of course, ignoring the fact that we have two solid DNA profiles of unknown male contributors on Becky's body, but anything Robert and Christian would have left behind must have been washed away by the foam. And for what it's worth, there's no way they used foam to extinguish her body. They just didn't. First of all, that's not what it's for. Secondly, there's no indication whatsoever that foam was used in the pictures taken that night. It leaves residue that is easily seen, and it's not in those pictures. But then Aki creates a narrative that I can only describe as make-believe. And that's mostly due to the keen eye of listener Uli, who noticed DeHart completely mislabeled the arson investigation pictures. DeHart said the fire started at the foot of the stairs leading to the upstairs bedrooms. He knows that because of the hole burned through the floor at that location. Problem is, there's no hole there. The hole he has labeled as being at the foot of the stairs is actually 20 feet away in the dining room, nowhere near the stairs. And that's not to mention that DeHart is flatly wrong about the point of origin. I say that confidently as an arson investigator myself. He completely ignored the fact that the entire floor is burned away on the west side of the house, and the damage to the exterior walls proves, without a doubt, that that is where the bulk of the accelerant was used, and that is where the fire started. But I digress. I'm only pointing that out because Aki used this incorrect analysis to tell a fairy tale. But before he does that, he makes up some details of his own. He adds in that there were two gas cans found upstairs in the house. Now, you and I know that that can't be true for one very simple reason. There was no upstairs to the house when the arson investigation was done. The second floor had completely burned away. It was gone. And secondly, we know where those cans were actually found. They were found in the attic of the garage, which didn't burn. They were just stored up there. But listen to how Aki ties all of this misinformation into a nice little tale. Quote, What's also important is that upstairs you find these two gas canisters. The two gas cans which were upstairs, which indicates to you, because there was not a hole up there, there was just fire damage, is that they took the pour, poured it downstairs, walked it upstairs until the gas cans were empty, and threw it into the attic area, then walked back downstairs and lit the structure on fire. End quote. You can see how he's trying to make the jurors create a picture in their mind, almost a movie in their mind of how this happened. But none of that's true. Amongst all the other reasons, there was no access to that attic from upstairs, and there was no indication that those two canisters were anywhere near a fire. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Next, Aki tries to push the time that Becky's body was set on fire back as far as he can because of the 1023 voicemail call. He says that Becky's body was extinguished at 1014. He says we know that. Well, first of all, we don't know that. And second of all, I can tell you from 16 years of experience, there's no way that's true. The engine arrived on scene at 1012. When the truck arrives, the captain has to analyze the scene and then give an on-scene report over the radio where he describes the structure, the conditions of the fire, the strategy, and advise incoming rigs of their assignment. It would sound something like this. Engine 1 is on scene of a two-story residential structure fully engulfed. We'll be operating in the defensive strategy. Tender 2, set up the dump tank at the end of the driveway and establish a water shuttle upon your arrival. Something along those lines. It takes a few seconds to a minute to say, but it takes longer than that to figure out what you're going to say. Then, Captain Williams got out of the truck and did a 360 walk around, meaning he walked all the way around the house, keeping enough distance so as not to be burned by the radiant heat of the fire and making sure that he's not breathing in the smoke from the fire. He started across the front, around to the west side, and then the back. He would have already seen the front from the truck. But now, he's not just walking around. The purpose of the walk around is because he's assessing the stability of the structure. He's looking for victims and windows, power lines, gas lines, trip hazards, etc. He's analyzing the scene as a whole before he gives any orders. At the end of the walk around is when he saw Becky's body in the wheelbarrow. At that point, he either goes back to the truck or radios the attack team to stretch a hose line and extinguish her body. And that's a process all by itself. These are not rubber hoses on a roll. The attack line used here was an inch and three-quarter canvas attack hose. They're big, they're bulky, and they're heavy even when there's not water in them. They're set up pre-connected to the truck in 150-foot to 200-foot lengths, but they're folded up into beds on top of the truck, which are eight feet long. So imagine a 150-foot-long, heavy, bulky hose folded up to fit into an eight-foot-wide bed. You have to pull that hose off the bed and then stretch it out. Usually, it's laid in there so that you can pretty easily stretch it into a big kind of S pattern. Then, the engineer will charge the hose. Then, you have to bleed the air out of the hose. Then, you stretch the now very heavy hose to where you need to spray the water. Aki is claiming that all of that happened in two minutes, and pardon my French, but there's no fucking way that's true. My real estimate would be more like five minutes, but in my calculations I've used throughout this season, I'm giving the state a free minute, and I'm saying four minutes. Point being, her body was not actually extinguished until at least 1016, not 1014. And yes, I realize that's a long explanation over two minutes, but minutes matter in this case. Aki tries to twist some facts. He says that because Tim Summerlee called 911 at 945, we know that the fire was already started by 945. Now, what Tim saw was the fire in the second floor of the house. And to be fair, Aki doesn't say that Tim saw Becky's body burning at 945. But he does throw it in there in the middle of the discussion about when Becky's body was lit on fire. So it kind of leads your brain down that path. 
He then jumps to the bullet wounds Vicky and John suffered, and then repeats again that the scene was chaotic, with water and foam being introduced. It's pretty clear what his big talking points were. Lots of water and foam, cell phones on Highway 74, and the scene of a violent struggle in the desert. We see those lines repeated over and over and over again. As he's breaking down the little evidence they did find, he points out the vans and DVS shoe prints. And he has the audacity to say, quote, We can't go back and determine what size the shoe was. End quote. That's absolutely not true. The same FBI agent that identified the make and model could have just as easily used the scale in the picture and told us exactly what size the shoe prints were. Another fact that the state didn't want the jury to know. And then, here it is again. Quote, You also know out near Placard E, which is just prior to that site where the struggle took place, where the violence took place out there, that there was a shoe on the bottom right-hand corner, the left shoe of Rebecca Friedley. That means she was out there. End quote. And as we know that print from a globe shoe, we don't know that it was Becky's globe shoe, but I'll concede it likely was her, was not found, quote, just prior to the site where the violent struggle occurred. It was found 60 feet away from a hole where a tree was dug up. And we have no idea when the print was made, but the consensus amongst our audience seems to be that it was made when the ground was wet. As he continues on, we hear it again. Quote, Out there in the expanse of this desert, we know that we follow where the wheelbarrow was, and it was led all the way out about approximately 200 yards to that crime scene where the violent struggle took place. End quote. He calls the hole a crime scene. He then mentions the business card again and says that the wheelbarrow tracks connect the desert crime scene to what he calls the crime scene next to the house, which would be Becky's body in the wheelbarrow. But of course, there's no mention of the fact that the wheelbarrow track stops 25 feet shy of the actual wheelbarrow with loose soil in between. And of course, the 60 feet of no human activity between the tracks and the hole. Next, Aki tells the story of how Robert had guilty knowledge of the crime scene because Javier knew nothing on the 18th except the fact that there had been a fire. He describes Javier's interview up at the scene on the 18th. Quote, he tells Detective LeClaire of that 640 conversation. The last time I spoke to Becky was last night at 640. She was supposed to go on a hike with Robert and Christian, who were on their way up the hill. End quote. The truth is, Javier specifically said he didn't know who was supposed to be with Robert in that interview. The impression that I got, in fact, was that he only knew someone else was coming because Robert told him. I don't think that information came from Becky. In fact, I'm pretty sure of it. When he describes his conversations with Becky, he says she told him Robert was on his way, not Robert and his friend are on their way. She told him not to come because it would be awkward for him to be there with Robert, not because it would be awkward for him to be there with Robert and Christian. And then we go back to Becky speaking to us from the grave again. Quote, that's Becky speaking to you from her grave. Javier has no specifics of the crime scene and continues to call Becky and Pate. He wants to know what's going on. His behavior is consistent with what a friend would do. He has no specifics of the crime. He can't see the crime scene. He knows nothing. End quote. He knows nothing. 
The way Aki describes it, he couldn't because Becky's body was put into a body bag hours before he got there. So it wasn't even in the wheelbarrow at that point. But of course, we know that Javier admitted that his father told him at least some details of the crime scene. Though he does deny that he told him about Becky being in the wheelbarrow. Next comes a strange contradiction. First, Aki points out that Sarah Honecker used the word remorseful to describe Robert the next day, which he says is an implication that Robert did something wrong and he's sorry for doing it. Never mind the fact that when asked on the stand what she meant by remorseful, Sarah clearly said she just meant that he was sad. But then later in closing, Aki paints Robert as some kind of psychopath and says that he shows no remorse at all. But which is it? Is he remorseful because he's guilty, or is he unremorseful because he's a psychopath? And this closing's full of a lot of contradictions like that that you got to be really paying attention to to catch. Aki goes on to mischaracterize Robert mentioning a Marine going on the hike, as well as John's son Robbie possibly being at the house. Aki says that Robert is, quote, giving up two other guys because he knows that this was a two-man job. He knows that you're going to find two footprints out there. He knows this, and so he offers up two alternatives, end quote. Aki is all over the place on this one, and it's also flatly not true. Robert didn't say a Marine and Robbie would be there. He said that Becky told him that another guy would be there. When asked who the guy might be, he said it could have been a Marine because Becky has dated Marines, a fact that was confirmed by her sister. He says he doesn't know that she said it was a Marine. She just said it was another guy. Then he suggests maybe the other guy was Robbie because that's what Javier told him. He never suggested that it was both. He never even said that Becky said it was either one of them. He only said that Becky told him another guy would be there, which, by the way, was 100% true. He talked to Becky at 6.14 p.m. At that time, Javier was planning to be there. It wasn't until 6.40 when Becky told Javier not to come, and Becky never talked to Robert again after that. This is a complete and total mischaracterization of what Robert said, and in fact, let's compare the two situations. Both Robert and Javier had plans to go to Becky's on the night she was murdered. Robert right away went to the police station and told them about the plans and that he had canceled. And that the reason he didn't want to go was because another guy would be there. And we know for a fact that there was indeed going to be another guy there. Javier, on the other hand, just like Robert, had plans to be at Becky's at the time of the murders. But he, on the other hand, lied to LeClaire and omitted the plans to be there. He said in his first interview that he was just up on the mountain that night because he was going for a ride because he was bored. He also said his cousin was at work that day, which also wasn't true. He didn't come clean about the plans to be at Becky's until days later. So which statement sounds more suspicious to you? Which coincidence is more suspicious to you? I said Aki was all over the place on this topic because here he is saying that Robert was lying about another guy being there. It was all a ruse by Robert so that he could place two other people at the crime scene because he knows they're going to find two sets of footprints. So at first mention in his story, Aki says there was no other guy. Robert made that up. But later he circles back to motive again and he says that the motive is obvious. Robert killed Becky because he was jealous of the other guy that was supposed to be there. He says, quote, he didn't get the answer he wanted on that 614 phone call, 
which would mean that there was another guy that was supposed to be there. The evidence in this case is so weak that not only does the state have to twist it, misrepresent the facts, and in several cases outright lie about the facts, but Aki also has to argue two different misrepresentations of the same facts that conflict with each other in order to try to convince the jury of guilt. Aki circles back around to the phone records again, driving home the same lie he told earlier, saying according to their stories, they only ever went to Robert's house and then Christian, so they should have never been hitting the towers in the south end of the valley. You know the facts on that, so I'm not going to continue harping on it. But then he starts twisting the facts even more with the 10.23 p.m. voicemail call. And there's another huge contradiction here. This is on page 19 of the transcript. He says that Robert and Christian say they went to the AMPM around 10 or 10.30 to get chapstick. But later in his closing, Aki claims that Robert and Christian claim this trip happened around 9.30 p.m., which he says is because they know that's when the crime was being committed. Well, first of all, neither of them ever said that. It's just flat-out lie. And secondly, it's contradicting what he's saying right here, which is that they said they went to the gas station around 10.30. But his lie here is that the phone records disprove it because the AMPM is in the Tower 707 coverage area and the voicemail check hits Tower 88. So how could they be at the AMPM when they're hitting Tower 88? Which is just absolute insanity. Regardless of your thoughts on guilt or innocence, you have to know that Tower 88 covers James Workman, which is exactly where they said they were when Robert saw a text from Marty asking for chapstick. It actually lines up perfectly. You can say that they made up this perfect alibi and perfect crime, but you can't say that the phone records don't accurately line up with what they said. The level of dishonesty in this closing is infuriating. And I say that with the understanding that twisting facts in closing isn't particularly uncommon. As we approach the end, Aki is desperately trying to put the murder weapons in Robert and Christian's hands. He brings up Chad Birnbaum's testimony about the Glock, the holster found in Robert's house a year after the murders, and the shell casings that Robert had collected from the gun range that happened to contain a 40 caliber and a 10 millimeter casing. And here's one of my favorite parts. Quote, And despite the fact that we know that the shell casings, their strike on the primer, is not one from a firing pin a Glock would make, there are three different types of handguns that could have been used. A Glock, an HK, and a car. End quote. This is why that's funny. He just spent the previous minutes trying to convince the jury that Robert owned a Glock at the time of the murders because of what Chad said and the fact that he had those shell casings from 40 cal and 10 millimeter bullets. So ipso facto, Robert had a 40 cal or a 10 millimeter Glock, which was the murder weapon, except the casings couldn't possibly have come from the imaginary Glock that Chad remembered a decade later after being sure Robert didn't own a pistol back in 2007. But that's okay because it could have come from another gun other than a Glock. But don't forget Robert had a Glock because of what Chad said. And the shell casings are important, except they're not. But also they are, but again, they're not because they didn't come from a Glock. But hey, none of that really even matters, he says. Because obviously these killers wouldn't keep the murder weapons around. That's why they couldn't find any actual evidence that they even had remote access to the guns that were used in these murders because clearly they would have gotten rid of those guns. I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up here with just a couple more highlights. And that has to do with the burn time of Becky's body and the drive test. 
We've been over it a hundred times, so I'm not going to really dig into it. But basically, Aki first tries to push the extinguishment time back a couple minutes, like we discussed earlier. And then he fudges Dr. Pope's time frame. Remember, on the stand, she said 20 minutes of burn time. But then when pushed and asked for a margin of error by the prosecutor, she conceded possibly up to 30 minutes, but that was the max. Well, in the closing, Aki pushes that even farther and says 30 minutes, give or take a few minutes. Except for the 30 minutes was the give or take. There is no more give from the 30 minutes. That was it. But essentially, he finishes his story with how easy it would have been for Robert and Christian to have lit Becky on fire and then drove to the north end of the valley in 30 minutes. Which, of course, you know my opinion on that. My favorite word, it's nonsense. And with that, I'm going to wrap this episode up. Thank you all so much for listening. The full transcript, of course, is available on our website. We'll be discussing this closing argument in length in this week's follow-up, and after that, I'll be breaking down the defense version of this story. That's next week on Truth and Justice. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. 